Chapter Eight, Parts Two through Four, Section Three, of A Defense of Idealism by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Eight, Conclusions, Parts Two through Four, Section Three. On the whole, then, the argument from desire and design holds good. It is the weak and inefficient, the unwise in the affairs of life the bunglers and the failures the bankrupts and the unhappy lovers who most want to leave off living think of the number of suicides that occur every year through bankruptcy and unhappy love alone count in the suicides through poverty and remember that these are all people whose vitality has been lowered by worry or frustrated passion and starvation and that their aim is to end life and not to obtain it more abundantly count in the philosophers who profess a noble indifference to the issue and still a suspicion of lowered vitality arises and if suicide is to be reprobated on the grounds that it is dishonourable and selfish the desire to go on living cannot very well be reprobated on the same grounds its motive may be and often is the passion for metaphysical truth and for a righteousness not obtainable on earth it may be and often is in the highest degree aesthetic for the universe as it stands is ethically and aesthetically incomplete it has a certain significance for our peculiarly human consciousness which never for one moment sees it where we may tails off into insignificance it appeals to us in an incalculable number of intensely exciting sentences which it hurls at our heads and leaves provokingly unfinished it has made us spectators of its stupendous drama what is more it has honoured us with free passes as critics of the performance worse still it involves us personally in important and dramatic situations which it leaves undeveloped it involves itself in perpetual engagements to us which hitherto it has not fulfilled it creates desires which certainly cannot be satisfied in one lifetime or in the conditions of the only life we know there is some evidence that it has created or is creating powers in us whose exercise demands another and more extensive sphere and we find it preposterous that a universe which has unbent so far as to consider us in this programme should leave us ultimately in the lurch and when we look back on the long course of our pre-human history we judge that if life does turn traitor at the last it will be behaving contrary to all precedent there should be no arraignment of nature so sweeping as to obscure the fact that there has been precedent organic forms locked in the infernal struggle for existence have after all evolved and the struggle has been an important factor in their evolution eliminate catastrophe the wholesale fortuitous destruction of living forms by storm and flood and sudden changes in environment and the encounter with inorganic conditions disastrous to any life eliminate waste the careless handling of the vehicle of life the fate of the germs that have never had a chance to develop eliminate the struggle of the already evolved the slaughter accomplished by one species on another and by individuals within the species assume with panpsychism that fitness is the expression of the individual's desire to survive and it will be seen that nature has not behaved unfairly to her organisms after all she has destroyed countless forms of the unfit in whom we may presuppose no very keen desire to survive she has preserved at their original low level 
millions of humble forms whose desire was chiefly that they might stay there but she has rewarded greatly the great desires the great ambitions the great accomplishments she has even more rewarded the small desires the small ambitions that were faithful and persistent nature abhors incompetence but apparently no patient and efficient psyche ever desired the physical vehicle or tool that it did not obtain no appropriate need was left long unsatisfied no organ left to wither by disuse as long as its function was appropriate and the fulfilment of that function desired if we may assume with panpsychism that need and desire were prophetic that is to say always a little in advance of the actual conditions without which advanced evolution would seem to have been impossible the analogy is complete and we are justified in asking why pursue this policy of indulgence to all the ambitious animal forms and stop short at man may he not go on doing what he did in his mother's womb what he has been doing ever since his psyche and the first speck of protoplasm came together why this sudden arbitrary prohibition now just when he is beginning to be interested in the universe around him as well as in his own performance now if there is anything in panpsychism this argument will stand whether we are pluralists or monists but i believe it will have most support from the theory which presupposes that there is one ruler the self within all things who makes the one form manifold there is one eternal thinker thinking non-eternal thoughts who though one fulfils the desires of many buddhism alone the great exception stands we are told in the way of the argument from desire but is buddhism really so obstructive as it is said to be isn't it just possible that the great exception may prove the rule consider how it came by its doctrine of nirvana granting for the moment that by nirvana it means what we mean by extinction as far as it is a theory and not a religion buddhism presupposes the metaphysical doctrine of the absolute laid down in the upanishads so far as it is a religion it is founded on compassion and pity and the revolt against the cruelty of caste the revolt against caste itself presupposes some influence from the doctrine of brahma the great self in whom all men and all things are one on its metaphysical side the nirvana of the buddhist is the state of union with the absolute or if you like the utter extinction of the individual as such on its religious side it is the ceasing from the sorrow of divided life desire is the cause of life which is the cause of sorrow therefore nirvana the state of blessedness is attained by simply ceasing to desire metaphysically nirvana is the state of pure absolute unconditioned being it is the very last and subtlest refinement of the one of the vedas the great self of the upanishads defined by contradictions and negations nirvana is defined only by negations the mystic of the upanishads says who is able to know that self who rejoices and rejoices not the buddhist of the suttas goes one better who is able to know that he does not know if the sixth stage of mental deliverance is to think that nothing at all exists the seventh stage is the passing quite beyond all idea of nothingness to a state to which neither ideas nor the absence of ideas is specially present and that is topped by the eighth stage in which nothing is affirmed and nothing is denied but both sensations and ideas have ceased to be this is the mental discipline by which thought reaches up to nirvana 
the state which transcends thought it is ecstasy of contemplation you may say that buddhism ends where hegelianism begins with the statement that being and non-being are the same that it reverses the movement of the triple dialectic that instead of resolving the contradiction in the synthetic affirmation of becoming it proceeds by way of the negation of becoming the denial of the world of appearances to its definition of being buddhism is the denial of all the metaphysical systems that were before it you might think a metaphysical system did not matter but it matters horribly a metaphysical system is a deadly thing it may bind a man to the wheel of life by giving him wrong ideas about reality in the sutta of all the asavas or book of the deadly things you will read of the six delusions of metaphysical thought i have a self i have not a self by myself i am conscious of myself by myself i am conscious of my not-self this soul of mine can be perceived it has experienced the result of good and evil actions committed here and there this soul of mine is permanent lasting eternal unchangeable it will endure for ever and ever the delusion consists not in having these ideas but in ascribing truth and reality to them you may say that buddhism lands you in utter nescience since it denies every conceivable statement that can be made about reality but observe the nature of the denial in each case it is the negation of a negation in the supreme interests of the absolute buddhism denies the reality of the appearing world it strips being bare of each unreal quality one by one till not one shred of illusion is left clinging to it beyond this it makes no affirmation or denial as the qualities are expressly stated to be unreal the stripping process is anything but negation it is the affirmation of reality carried to passion and excess so that the unreal individual life must therefore be held to be utterly extinguished in nirvana but it is hardly even an open question whether nirvana is or is not a state of being a pure and perfect bliss beyond speech beyond sense beyond thought beyond dream and desire or any form of consciousness we know to define it as the buddhist defines it by a series of negations is simply a way of saying with the utmost metaphysical hyperbole that where there is nothing there is all but whatever esoteric buddhism might have said or meant it was not entirely with that seemingly unreal glamour that it charmed the heart of asia for everything that was lacking in nirvana it made up by its very robust and substantial doctrine of reincarnation to disciples who had no fancy for extinction it offered an endless and exciting round of rebirths nobody forced nirvana on you if you didn't want it you could postpone your flight to the absolute practically to all eternity by a judicious system of backsliding you had only to neglect some obvious duty in each life as you returned to it to ensure another return in fact you had not even to do that you had only to desire to live again and you lived your karma might indeed force you back again against your will but then you are responsible for your karma the whole thing is in your own hands desire binds you to the wheel of life desire shapes your destiny for you within the wheel your desire not god's not anybody else's it is panpsychism all over again you grow your own organism because you want to this amounts to personal immortality as much immortality as you want and for as long as you want it so that buddhism should really not be used by sceptics to justify their scepticism 
one imagines that buddhists who declare for nirvana in preference to reincarnation are the decadents and the professors of philosophy and the mystics who know what they know but there is a third objection that may be made in the beginning we found the perfection of individuality in perfect adaptation to reality and it may be said that the argument from desire overlooks the compulsion that is laid on the individual to conform things are not in his own hands the will to live is not his will from step to step the psyche follows in the line set by a reality outside it of which its physical organism is part the panpsychist looks at the process from the inside adaptation he says does not suggest that the individual's will is coerced and determined by the reality outside and beyond him since it could not have taken place at all but for the individual's inner disposition or will all the same physical or spiritual death will be the price of his utter defiance the individual must adapt himself or go under and if that is not coercion i own it looks uncommonly like it yet consider what on the panpsychist theory has really happened that the individual's psyche has been present throughout the entire experience of the race and that the individual could never have been what he is at each moment of his ascension if he had not needed wanted desired and willed to be something that he was not yet consider that he would never have grown never have developed at all would be limited as many unambitious individuals are for all time to the companionship of the original speck of protoplasm he first took up with even if he advanced to the cell stage without what strikes the outsider as his insane ambition to grow another cell he would have remained a unicellular organism all his life therefore on the very supposition that his earliest adaptations were to a reality as yet outside and beyond him his earliest developments must have entailed some slight defiance of the existing order and his earliest need was a prophetic need and when we come to the human individual his latest and highest developments mean a very considerable defiance of existing order a very considerable prophetic need and his latest and highest efforts at adaptation show an audacity that still suggests defiance rather than submission whatever it may look like from outside adaptation seen from within as the panpsychist sees it looks much more like the fulfilment of desire than its coercion if the perfect individual is the self perfectly adapted to reality through the successive sublimations of his will the monist will grant you the compulsion you insist on if the laws of nature are the laws of the appearance of the self in whom all selves arise and have their being the compulsion that is upon the selves to obey them is not an outside compulsion it is the compulsion of their own nature in its will to appear part three to sum up the metaphysical argument that we left behind us it supposes one infinite and absolute spirit manifesting itself in many forms to many finite spirits it supposes the selves of the many finite spirits to receive and to maintain their reality in and through the one infinite self as truly as their organisms received and maintained their life through its appearance as one life force for though the finite selves may exist over and above their organisms and their experience and apart from each other they do not subsist they are not over and above and apart from the one self in whom they have their reality but the finite selves may be supposed 
to be potentially infinite since they have conceived infinity it would seem hardly worth while for the infinite spirit to have revealed himself so far if the tremendous and significant process was not to be carried on appearances may be unreal but they are significant why be at the pains of accumulating experiences through countless generations if the whole is to be squandered in one passionate instant of death but on the theory it will not by any means follow that if we survive we shall survive as the individuals we are now or even as individuals at all selfhood as we have seen is not necessarily individuality if ourselves existed at all before birth they would seem to have existed as members of a group self or as mysterious partakers in the experiences of millions of individuals anyhow in a manner utterly incompatible with individuality as we understood it here and now and yet on that theory selfhood seemed to have been very efficiently maintained even in our experience here and now though our selfhood would seem to remain inviolable our individuality holds its own precariously at times and with difficulty against the forces that tend to draw us back to our racial consciousness again the facts of multiple personality telepathy and suggestion the higher as well as the lower forms of dream consciousness indicated that our psychic life is not a watertight compartment but has porous walls and is continually threatened with leakage and the flooding in of many streams it may be that individuality is only one stage and that not the highest and the most important stage in the real life process of the self it may be that a self can only become a perfect self in proportion as it takes on the experiences of other selves just as it could only become a perfect individual by taking on the experience of millions of other individuals the individual that is to say may have to die that the self may live on the theory this sacrifice would not mean what is called subjective immortality but rather the very opposite in subjective immortality the individual lives precariously in the memory of posterity which may after all prefer to forget him in any case it is a form of consciousness to which on this theory he has contributed but does not share he has no consciousness of anything any more at all but the life after death of the perfected self would mean an enormous increase of consciousness through a spiritual communion in which all that is imperfect in passion all that is tentative in compassion and insight and inspiration is finished and complete but the greatest objection to the acceptance of this form of monism turns on the difficulty not to say the impossibility of conceiving how the selfhood of the finite selves is maintained in and through their fusion with the infinite self now there are certain forms of dream consciousness in which precisely such a transfusion is apparently effected and maintained i can vouch for one authentic dream which began in the most ordinary fashion by the dreamer imagining a complex dramatic situation involving three persons not counting the dreamer herself the situation itself was normal and imagined in a perfectly normal way without a single element of fantasy the dreamer so far was simply dreaming the outline of a very ordinary novel or a play but no sooner did the outline and the parts to be played by the three persons become clear than the dreamer became the three persons and experienced in one and the same moment three sets of emotions all distinct from each other two of which were conflicting and two downright contradictory she accomplished in one and the same moment 
through the three persons three distinct and different acts two of which were mutually exclusive besides maintaining three distinct and appropriate attitudes to the total event while playing with perfect difference yet perfect unity these three parts in the drama the dreamer also stood apart and looked on an unprejudiced and unmoved yet interested spectator the actors who appeared as very vividly incarnate bore no sort of resemblance to the dreamer or to any person known to her from beginning to end not only three distinct experiences but three distinct selfhoods were preserved in one experience and one selfhood it may be objected that as dreams are hallucinations we cannot argue from what happens in a dream to what may happen in reality that under analysis this particular dream presents no more remarkable features than any other dream and that the peculiar qualities claimed for it are classic features of the freudian hypocritical dream multiplication of the dreamer's person by substitution of other persons and representation of events consecutive in time by juxtaposition in space the third objection which might have been serious does not hold good of this dream emotions and moral attitudes and the sense of personal identity whether simple and distinct or complex and transfused are not representations in space either in dream consciousness or in any other and in the dream they were not symbolized but felt in the perfect intimate immediacy of feeling and the other objections are beside the point it does not matter whether dreams are or are not hallucinations it does not matter what interpretation we put upon this dream or what elements it yields under analysis dream consciousness is a form of consciousness like another it has its own reality it is not claimed for this dream that a real transfusion of consciousness and of selves took place in it only that it gave a perfect and indubitable sense of such transfusion of what it would feel like if the transfusion did take place also that as the dream was at least clear enough and coherent enough to be remembered and analyzed by the dreamer there remained in waking consciousness a valid conception of the whole synthetic event a synthetic event which was said to be inconceivable ruling out irrelevant objections then there are only three points that need concern us we have in this dream consciousness a plurality of illusory consciousnesses a plurality of illusory selves held together by one real self and existing in and through and for one real consciousness and that without loss to the integrity of one illusory item of the illusory complex without any rupture of the unity of the one self the complex is illusory only by comparison with the peculiar reality of waking consciousness it however exists it has its own dream reality it arises presumably because the dream consciousness is free from those conditions of real space and real time which determines the psychophysical life of the individual when awake for illusory read finite and you have an exact rendering of the situation assumed by pantheistic monism a plurality of finite consciousnesses a plurality of finite selves held together by one real self existing in and through and for one real consciousness and that without loss to the integrity of one finite item of the finite complex without rupture to the unity of the one self you may say that the finite complex is unreal only by comparison with the peculiar reality of the infinite real it has its own reality and you may say that the situation assumed by the monist 
presupposes a corresponding transcendence of the conditions of finite space and finite time the one infinite spirit then is the finite selves that the selves are not conscious of this union is the tragedy of their finitude in our present existence we are spirit but so limited in our experience that we know the appearances of spirit far better than we know spirit itself if we knew them all and if in order to know them it so happened that we increased the pace of the rhythm of time as it is increased in our dream consciousness only to an immeasurably more intense degree the chances are that we should know spirit not as it appears but as it is appearances would be whirled for us as it were into the one reality as the colours of the spectrum painted on a revolving disc are whirled into one whiteness by the sheer rapidity of its revolutions there are after all different kinds of certainty and all our certainties that count here and now come to us after this fashion our inner states do succeed each other at different rates of vibration and what escapes us on the slow steady swing we seize when the pace quickens our perceptions like our passions maintain themselves at higher and lower intensities it is with such rapid flashes of the revolving disc with such hurrying of the rhythm of time with such heightening of psychic intensity that we discern reality here and now no reasoning allows or accounts for these moments but lovers and poets and painters and musicians and mystics and heroes know them moments when eternal beauty is seized travelling through time moments when things that we have seen all our lives without truly seeing them the flowers in the garden the trees in the field the hawthorn on the hillside change to us in an instant of time and show the secret and imperishable life they harbour moments when the human creature we have known all our life without truly knowing it reveals its incredible godhead moments of danger that are moments of sure and perfect happiness because then the adorable reality gives itself to our very sight and touch there is no arguing against certainties like these end of chapter eight recording by expatria in bangor maine end of a defensive idealism by may sinclair